would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. Continue our study in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. This morning we begin the third and final section of this letter that begins with chapter 10 and takes us through to the end of chapter 13. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. For 2 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show such boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to add his blessing to it. O Lord, our God. Lord, we know that this is your word. It is indeed living and powerful, even as you have told us. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we pray that your word would search us. That as we hear it, as we study it, that we would come under its authority, that we would not seek to stand above it and observe, but rather that we would see your word as your main means to conform us into the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We ask that you would do that work in us today. Make us more like Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Today, we are living in a world that has a mindset of warfare. We are seeing increased hostility and even violence in our society. People talk about the enemy and they look for ways to fight and harm the enemy. But for Christians, we should know that not only are we in a war, we have always been in a war. There has always been a war, a spiritual war. And it is crucial that we understand that our weapons are not of this world. We do not use power or violence or the world's ways. Instead, we follow our captain, Jesus, in fighting for his kingdom. And so this morning... As Paul moves to the final section of this second letter to the Corinthians, he begins to talk about the war that the Christian is in. 
And He gives us our instructions, our marching orders, and He helps us to understand what this war is all about. This morning, I'd like us to see three things about the Christian's warfare. First, Paul tells us the mindset that we are to have in this war. Then secondly, Paul tells us the weapons that God has given to us to fight with in this war. And then finally, Paul tells us the outcome of this war. What the end of this warfare will be to give us confidence and hope. A mindset, weapons, and an outcome of this war. Let's begin then by looking at the mindset that we are to have in this kind of warfare. As I've said, this begins a new section of this letter. In chapters 1 through 7, Paul was focused on the restored relationship that he had with the church at Corinth. And there, his tone was gentle, peaceful, designed to show his care for them. And that allowed Paul, in chapters 8 and 9, to take up the subject of the offering for the saints in Judea. And to give a theology of Christian giving. One doesn't exactly ask for an offering while one is at odds with the people that you are speaking to. And so the restored relationship leads to an overflow of giving. And now Paul moves directly to confront his opponents. These are the ones who were undermining his ministry and the gospel in Corinth. And so the next four chapters are much sharper, sterner. Paul is going to go after the enemies of the gospel at Corinth. But before he takes up that battle, he wants us to know what the battle is all about. He doesn't want us to be mistaken about what the battle is. He doesn't want us to be mistaken about the weapons or the tactics of this battle. This great warrior for Christ is going to teach us about Christian warfare. And the first thing that he does is show us the mindset of Christian warfare. And that mindset begins with compassion. The Christian's mindset in warfare should be compassionate. Now, this is certainly not the first thing that comes to our minds when we think of a warrior. After all, warriors are fierce. They're violent. In Paul's day, they were known for not taking prisoners. We read in ancient stories of when cities were captured, that even non-combatants, women and children, were killed and enslaved by the warriors. But Paul makes sure that we know that compassion is not only applicable to warfare, it is essential to warfare. We see this in the way that Paul begins. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you. Paul begins by reminding them of who he is. He is the apostle, the founder of this church, the one who has authority, the one that you are to listen to. And yet he begins with a note of entreaty. I, Paul, myself, the one that you have come to know with authority, I'm asking you now. This reminds us that compassion doesn't reduce authority. 
Having compassion does not make you weak. Far too often we think that in order to be strong, we have to be harsh. We have to talk the tough talk. We have to have tough actions. We have to give no ground at all. Show not the slightest weakness. But this is not the way of Paul. And it's not the way of Jesus either. Because Paul tells us that the Christian warrior's mindset is not full of rage and anger. This is not the way of Jesus, Paul says. Don't, if you don't take my personality as the standard, look to our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He describes who Jesus is, and by describing Jesus, he puts at the forefront the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Now, what does Paul mean by the meekness of Christ? This is humility. It's the sense of not being overly impressed with one's own importance. Now, does any term better describe the Lord Jesus Christ? He who is the second person of the Godhead, the creator of all things, the sustainer of the universe. Jesus is never in the pages of the Gospels impressing us with who he is. Can you imagine if the Gospels were filled with stories of Jesus confronting his opponents by saying, Listen up, who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? Do you know that the air that you breathe, the life that you have comes from me? That I'm the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things? Why aren't you giving me the respect that I deserve? You see, Jesus is not impressed with his own importance. And this is also true of Paul. Paul could have ordered the Corinthians around. This church wouldn't exist but for him. They wouldn't be believers but for his preaching. And yet instead, he entreats them. He asks them. He comes alongside them, we might say, by the meekness of Jesus. This idea of meekness is of power and authority that is under control. Moses, in Numbers chapter 12, is described as the meekest man in the world. And I think this description is very appropriate because Moses was known for having his power under control. He was a man who wielded the staff of God, who brought plagues down on the most powerful kingdom in the area, who led out the Israelites from Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, who brought the Israelites through the wilderness. And yet Moses was not continually trying to impress others with who he was. He wasn't wielding his power and authority in a showmanship way. No, he was meek. He had power. He had authority. But it was under control. To be meek means to be patient. To be free from anger. Free from hatred. That should mark our lives as we wage Christian warfare. And then Paul gives us a second word, a synonym, if you will, by the gentleness of Christ. This word is very close to the word meekness, but it has got slightly different nuances. This word has the idea of leniency, 
of mercy built into it. In the midst of injustice, we might say, the one who is gentle does not retaliate. He doesn't feel the need to show others that he is right at every turn. Now let me ask you, does this describe you in your life? Does this describe your Facebook interactions? Would someone who interacts with you know that you are compassionate? Because that is not weakness, unless we're willing to call Jesus weak. It is a part of the mindset of Christian warfare. Now, compassion is not the only part of this mindset. Part of the reason that we resist being compassionate is that we don't want to be seen as being weak. And the world itself views compassion as weakness. And this was true of Paul's enemies in the church. We can see that the way that they describe and criticize Paul, Paul uses this sarcasm in verse 1. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when I am away. Paul is quoting his detractors who say, sure, sure, when he's far away, when he's behind a desk with a pen, then he's bold. But when he's here with us, when he's up close, then he's a wimp. He's gutless. That's what they mean, Paul's opponents, when they call him humble. They mean that he's weak, wimpy, gutless. And this is a clever accusation for them to make, because how does Paul defend it? If Paul defends himself in bold strokes, they'll say, well, that's all well and good when you're far away, Paul. We knew you would be bold that way. And if Paul says, well, there's a reason for my humility and my gentleness, they'll say, oh, yeah, Paul, sure, you're just covering for yourself. And so Paul knows that while he's called to compassion, to gentleness and meekness, there is a place also for courage, for fighting. And that is when efforts at patience and compassion are exhausted. When the only way to defend the truth is to fight, then Paul is not afraid. Do you see how Paul turns on this in verse 2? He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show you boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul says, I'm asking you, please, don't make me come and confront you. You won't like the outcome of that. You won't like to see me in that perspective. I've got courage. You can be sure of that, Paul says. And you would think, that the church would have known this. All we need to do is read the book of Acts to see Paul's courage. Here is a man who never shrank back from preaching the gospel, who never bypassed a city where there were hostile people, who was threatened, who was imprisoned, who was, uh, uh, had plots against him to murder him, and yet Paul never shrank back. He never tried to hide. He never gave up preaching the gospel. Paul is a model of courage throughout the book of Acts. I can be bold, Paul says. His enemies said he was only bold when he was away. 
But Paul says, I will show you boldness when I'm with you. Now, what causes the difference here? Why courage and not compassion? Is it just that Paul is now angry? Is he tired of being pushed around? Is, is that the lesson that we're to get from our text this morning? When someone attacks us, then we are free to let it loose. All bets are off because they've attacked us. You've done me wrong, that gives me the right to do you wrong. We might think of it in this way. You bring a knife to the fight, I'll bring a gun. Let's see how that goes for us. Sadly, I think that's often how we think. When someone attacks us, we see that as an excuse for us to go on the offensive and to attack others. But I want you to notice two things that are very important here. It's not just that Paul is angry. It's not just that he's tired of being pushed around. Paul says, first, that his boldness is with confidence. And this word confidence means conviction. That is, the conviction of his heart and of his mind. It means something that he is assured of, persuaded of. Something that he knows is true. So what Paul is saying here is, I will come at you with the truth. Don't mistake my compassion as a willingness to abandon the truth. I am going to be compassionate, but I'm not going to abandon the truth in order to be compassionate. And then he tells us what the real attack is upon him. Secondly, he says, I am going to show this boldness against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul's opponents are accusing him of being a phony, of not being spiritual, really of not even being a believer. They say, you walk according to the flesh. You walk according to wickedness. You just tell people a good story, but you don't really believe in Jesus. You're not really spiritual. And those are fighting words for Paul. He won't have the gospel to be undermined. He's willing to take attacks upon himself, but he's not willing to take attacks upon his Savior. And so this is the first thing that we see. The mindset of the Christian in the midst of warfare. It is compassionate and courageous. Then in verse 3, Paul turns to the weapons of warfare. And this is important because if we have the wrong weapons, we will not be successful in the war. In fact, the wrong weapons in our possession show we don't even understand the nature of the war. Early, for example, in World War II, there were cavalry units. You know, men on horseback with swords. And they would charge tank units. They didn't understand what the war was about. As you can imagine, it didn't go well for those cavalry troopers. They were wiped out. They didn't understand that they had the wrong weapons for this kind of war. And so Paul wants us to understand the nature of this war and tells us the proper weapons that we are to have in our hands. And he starts this by using a play on words. He has been criticized by his enemies for walking according to the flesh. 
Now, to walk according to the flesh would be to be corrupt, to be wicked. That was the accusation, that Paul was weak and he was corrupt. But Paul turns it and he says, I don't walk according to the flesh, but in verse 3, although we walk in the flesh. Now, this is more than just a small prepositional difference. To walk according to the flesh is to be corrupt and wicked. To walk in the flesh is merely to be human. Paul says, I'm a human being. I'm not a superman. I'm not better than everyone else. What I'm writing about isn't just applicable to me as an apostle. It's applicable to all of you, Corinthians. All of you, Christ Church. This way of fighting warfare is for you also. And at the same time, even though I am human, he says, this doesn't mean that this is a human battle. We are not waging a war according to the flesh. This warfare is not human warfare. Those rules do not apply. Now, Paul uses an interesting phrase here. He says, we are not waging war according to the flesh. He doesn't use the word fight. He uses the word waging war, which is a Greek word that we get our strategy from. He says the way we think about this, we think strategically about this war, the way we plan, the way we operate is not in a human way. It's not in a worldly way. He says when you think about the battle, you have to think about the spiritual battle that is at hand. And so we have weapons fitted for that battle. Now, could you imagine fighting a battle in the midst of the ocean with a tank as a weapon? Or could you imagine in the midst of a landmass having a submarine as your weapon? Of course not. It would be ridiculous. You need weapons that are suited to the battle. And so this is not a fleshly human battle. This is a spiritual battle. So what we need are spiritual weapons. We need weapons fit for this battle. And so he begins then to describe for us what these weapons are like in verse 4. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. So as he so often does, Paul gives us the negative and the positive. He begins with the negative. He says, They are not of the flesh. Let me tell you what these weapons are not. They are not worldly. They are not of this world. Think about the weapons that the world uses. Wealth, power, ambition, cleverness. Think about the tactics that politicians use or that advertisers use or that rulers or dictators use. Actually, think about what many churches do today. They market. They manipulate. They use entertainment. They make it hard to know the difference between church and American Idol. And yet others act as if the church is merely an extension of the world. As if the gospel goes forward by the American flag. As if the laws we pass in Congress can redeem us can save us. 
You see, it is not just the appearance of the weapons that's important, but the type of the weapons. Worldly weapons will not do the job, Paul says. But instead, positively, we are to use weapons that have divine power. And it's very interesting because Paul uses a construction in the Greek that gives it multiple possible translations. He writes that these are weapons which are powerful with God, or powerful for God, or even powerful before God. The idea is that the weapons are the ones given by God. They are powerful because God is powerful. The idea is not so much that the weapons in themselves have power, as that the God who gives them and controls the warfare has power. So, of course, the next question is, what are the weapons? What does Paul mean? If we don't use the weapons that we see around us every day, what is it that we are to use? I think Paul has in mind here the armor of God that he describes in Ephesians 6. Because after all, in Ephesians 6, he says, we are fighting against the schemes of the devil. And we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities. Because our warfare is not worldly, but spiritual, we need spiritual weapons. And the very first weapon that Paul mentions is the belt of truth. In this war, the truth is our supreme weapon. Not a truth, but the truth. We might even say true truth. The most important weapon we have is not a killer argument or an undisputable fact. This is often how warfare is waged on social media and in the news and in the public scene. No, our weapon is the word of God, truth itself. Are you practicing with that weapon? How much time do you spend reading and memorizing God's Word compared to how much time you spend on social media? How much time do you study God's Word compared to the time you spend reading news articles? How sharp is your sword? Are you prepared? Are you ready? Because that killer internet article is a wet noodle compared to the Word of God. And think about the preaching of God's Word. Think about what turned the world upside down during the days of the apostles, in a time of hostility, in a time when the state was against them, the culture was against them, even the religious establishment was against them. What turned the world upside down was the preaching of God's Word. Next, Paul gives us the breastplate of righteousness. And this is our knowledge that we are safe and secure in Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. We don't have to fear the battle that we go into because the outcome is already sure. We know we are righteous in Christ. Have you ever had the opportunity 
to watch a critical sporting event for your team on replay after the game is over. It's the kind of a game that you might be nervous during the game, especially if your team made a mistake or if there was a problem or perhaps they were losing in a period of time. You would be nervous and wonder, can they pull it out? Can they do it? Am I going to be sad at the end? But if you're watching a replay and you already know the score, anything that you watch that is negative doesn't affect you at all. You say to yourself, well, we're going to pull it out anyway. It's a fact. I don't just feel so. It's a fact. I know the truth. Well, let me tell you, that is the case with your warfare, Christian. We know the end of the story. Jesus wins. There is no doubt in that. It doesn't depend on our skill. It doesn't depend on even how we wage war. We know that Jesus is the victor. That his righteousness is our righteousness. That is a weapon you carry with you each and every day as you go through trials and temptations. Then Paul talks about the shield of faith. Now notice that faith defends us from the counter-assault of our enemy. The enemy does not stand by idly while we destroy his strongholds. No. He counterattacks. He fires darts at us. Darts of doubt. Darts of division. Darts of accusation. And the way that we combat that is by faith. Faith in the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith gives us a surety of our relationship with Jesus to withstand the attacks of the enemy. The Apostle Paul, remind, or excuse me, the Apostle John reminds us in his first letter that our victory is found by faith. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith is used by God to bring victory. We might also think of the great weapon of prayer that we have. James tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power when it is working. Have you ever had someone come to you with a challenge? Perhaps they have a financial difficulty and you say, oh, I'll pray for you. You need $30,000. I, I can't write you a check, but I guess the least I can do is pray for you. Or someone's going in to get medical tests that they know could turn out very badly. And you're not a healer, so you say, I can't do that for you, but at, at the very least I can pray for you. I think oftentimes that's the way we view prayer. It's kind of a lackluster, we can't do anything else. I'll say this, it'll make you feel better. But the Bible tells us that prayer has real power to win victories. Not because of us, not because of our eloquence or the words that we pray, but because God has invested prayer with power. He has told us that he hears the cries of his people. That prayer opens up to us the power of heaven. Ask, the Lord says, and it will be given to you. What greater weapon could we want? Now, what these weapons can do is incredible. Paul tells us that they destroy strongholds. And by destroy, Paul means tear down, brick by brick. Overthrow them completely. Subvert them entirely. And what 
these weapons tear down are not weak, temporary barriers. No, they are the strongest defenses imaginable. Strongholds, fortresses. If you could imagine a large ancient city, that city would have an outer wall that would ring it and probably encapsulate not just the city proper, but many of its fields. And then there would be an inner wall that was larger and thicker and more defensive that they, the army would retreat to to be even more sure of its defense. And then there would be a citadel, a stronghold in the midst of the city, a place that would be all but impregnable where the army would retreat knowing that they would be safe. That's the word that Paul uses here. The fortress, the stronghold of the enemy. Not just the weak parts, not just on the edge. The weapons that God gives to us do not just make it possible so that we can exercise free speech in a university. Or so that we can have opportunities to fend off attacks. No, these weapons that God gives to us tear down the strongholds of the devil. Do you see what Paul is saying here? How could you possibly attack a stronghold with a pea shooter or a BB gun? Would that do any good against a large fortress or wall to shoot some BBs at it? That's what we're doing when we use the weapons of the world against the strongholds of the enemy. The walls of Constantinople were famous for centuries. It was the capital of the Roman Empire for a time, and then the Byzantine Empire for a time, because these walls were 40 feet high and 15 feet thick. Soldiers could stand in ranks upon these walls. And they lasted for more than a thousand years because the weapons of the time could not defeat them. Spears and arrows and swords were no match for 40 by 15 feet thick walls. But after a thousand years had gone, the Turks came and sieged the city. And they brought a little thing with them called gunpowder. And they set up cannons around the walls. And they fired blast after blast after blast. And they killed the men on the walls. And they broke holes open in the walls. These walls that had stood for a thousand years with the right weapon were wiped out in short order. That's the picture that we should have of the warfare that we conduct with the weapons that God has given to us. Our spiritual weapons have divine power to destroy the strongholds of the enemy. Now, what are these strongholds? Paul describes them in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. First, they are arguments. They are reasonings, Paul says. Rational arguments would be the, the phrase that would be used. Paul says we destroy them with our weapons. So what does that mean? That means, Christian, that your faith has nothing to fear from questions or debates. Sometimes I think we think that Christianity has no answer for science. No answer for reason. That all we can do is hope against what everyone else knows. But Paul says, no, 
We destroy these earthly, worldly reasonings. We destroy their conclusions with the weapons that God has given to us. Now, that does not mean that when you walk out this door, you will be able to win every argument you ever have with an unbeliever. But it does mean that no unbelieving argument can overthrow the word of God. Do you notice the difference? We may be weak, but God is strong. And he gives us strength and weapons to fight in this battle. That is because the Bible is true. The Bible is real reality. Take evolution, for example. Many believe that evolution conclusively proves the Bible is untrue. That it proves that the scripture knows nothing about creation. That it's just a fantasy, a fairy tale, if you will. But what happens if we ask this question? What was before the Big Bang? What caused the Big Bang? Oh, you mean to say you don't know? Well, more than that, you mean to say you can't ever know? Because we have no way to observe that? You can't go back to the beginning? You can't go back to before the beginning? Of course you can't. Not without God and His Word. That's not just a matter of faith. That's one of logic and reason. How can the universe, for example, be getting more and more complex and building up? When scientists tell us that the second law of thermodynamics is that all things are breaking down constantly. You know this every day, don't you? Your vehicle, does it get newer and newer every day? Does it get better and better? Or does it rust? And does it break down? Any of you who've owned an older vehicle know that there are things that break down that you don't even know could break down. They don't involve the engine. They're seals. They're gaskets. They're rubber things. And they just deteriorate. Because that's the way of the world. So how can the world be getting better and better and better and more and more complex when nature itself is against that? There is no answer for it. The second thing that Paul says that these weapons destroy are every lofty opinion. These are fortresses raised against the knowledge of God. They seek to keep people from God, from knowing Him and being saved. Now, we don't have time to describe each of them in detail, but they should be familiar to you. The lofty opinion of materialism that says, that the spiritual doesn't even exist. That all that matters is what I can see, hold, and possess. The theme of this worldview is the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. Every time I see that, I'm just struck by the utter stupidity of it. How could I win by dying and there being nothing after that? simply because I leave behind other stuff that's going to rot and destroy. It makes no sense at all. A second lofty opinion is hedonism. That is that we seek meaning in life through pleasure. And this is true of all of us. It could be seeking pleasure through eating or through drinking, or dare I say, young people, through video gaming. We seek pleasure 
and our meaning in that. Then there is the lofty opinion of individual autonomy. That the most important thing is me. My wants. My happiness. No one else matters. And then there is the lofty opinion of postmodernism that there is no meaning to life at all. Life is not even worth living. The outcome of the Christian warfare is to destroy these strongholds that have been raised against the Lord our God. But then Paul reminds us that there is one other outcome at the end of verse 5. Our warfare is not primarily to destroy. It is to bring people to Christ. We destroy these strongholds so that every thought can be captive to obey Christ. Do you see that? These strongholds are destroyed to take away the power of the enemy, to open the eyes of the blind and bring light where there was darkness. Once we are enrolled in the king's army, our aim is to have all serve the king. And this starts with us. Paul says we are to bring every thought captive to Christ. That means your life cannot be compartmentalized. Every area of your life needs to serve Jesus. You can't think and act a certain way at church and another way at work or at school, or in your neighborhood, or in your marriage, or in your parenting. Every thought must be brought captive to obey Jesus Christ and His commands. And the idea goes beyond us. The idea behind defeating godless philosophies and thought is so that other people will realize their need for Christ and come to Him. Are you ready for war? Because we are in a war. And there are no conscientious objectors. King Jesus has called everyone who believes in him into his service. But you cannot serve the king using the weapons of this world. Our minds must be set on a compassionate standing for truth. We must take up the spiritual weapons that God has given to us. Only when we do that will we see the strongholds of the enemy fall. Are you ready for battle? Is your sword sharp? Is your shield secure? May God give us grace to wage war as He commands with compassion and with courage. Let's pray.